I'm going to start this morning in Luke chapter 1. Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus, whereas Easter um, is concerned with and focuses on his resurrection. Christmas is the birth of Jesus. I think many times people fail to recognize the importance or significance of the fact that Jesus is not still in a manger. But what a wonderful story of the miraculous birth of our Lord and Savior. Luke chapter 1 verse 26, it says, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, a spouse to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Now folks, when Mary asks one question, and this is the, the, the account that we've got, she says one thing, she asks one question about becoming the mother of the Son of God, she says, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Now, that can't be the end of her questions. That just cannot be the end of everything that she doesn't know about this situation. It wouldn't be the end of mine. Would it be for you? What does overshadowed by the Holy Ghost mean? There's a lot of things that are left unsaid. But regardless, irrespective of whatever other questions she might have, notice her response. Be it unto me, according to your word. Here's this young girl. Most historical documents identify her as a mid-teenager, 16, maybe 17 years old, something like that, who's been handpicked by God to be the mother of Jesus, the mother of our Savior. And her question is, how shall this be? Seeing I know not a man. There's a lot of things that the Bible tells us about many details that it gives us, but there's a whole lot of things that aren't given to us, that aren't told us. One of the things that seem to be universal, or as universal as it could be, I guess, is that the virgin birth was something that all Israel was aware of. When it came for the Messiah that Israel was looking for, or the ones in Israel who were looking for one anyway, that seemed to be one of the things that they were looking the most for and one of the standards of judgment that came against Jesus by people that he was ministering to. What I mean by that is when Jesus entered his earthly ministry after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, the Holy Ghost descended upon him in bodily shape as a dove. Something flew from heaven and landed on him and stayed. 
And everybody that was there bear witness to the fact. It wasn't something done in secret. It was something that was done openly. And John, who was drawing huge crowds, probably on that occasion had another huge crowd that witnessed just exactly what took place. Well, the Bible tells us that after that, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And he went to Capernaum, and he had great success in casting out devils, healing the sick, miracles of healings, cripples being healed, blind eyes being opened, and so forth. But then one of the next places he went to was his hometown of Nazareth. You may recall that this is where the Bible tells us that the angel appeared to Mary was in Nazareth. And Jesus stood up in the synagogue to read, and he read from what we know of as Isaiah chapter 61. But in Luke 4, 18, it says this, he read where the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. And then he tells the things he's anointed to do. Heal the brokenhearted preach deliverance to the captives, preach recovering of sight to the blind, and so forth. And the people there rejected him. Jesus responded in a way that gives us a little bit more information about what had happened up to that point. He said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why don't I do the same miracles here that I did in Capernaum? Which tells us he had to have done miracles in Capernaum. The Bible says that he could not, in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, he could there do no mighty work. Didn't have any blind eyes open. Didn't have any lepers that were cleansed or cripples that were healed. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now both Luke and Luke 4 and Mark 6 identify why the people refused to believe. In Luke chapter 4, it should be about verse 22, it says, the people said, what are these gracious words that he's speaking? They recognized the power of the words that he spoke. They recognized the supernatural aspect of the things that he was saying. Well, then why wouldn't they believe? The Bible account was they questioned his birth. They said in Luke chapter 4, is this not Joseph's son? In Mark chapter 6, it tells us that he questioned his, they questioned his heritage too, but it, they didn't ask about Joseph, they asked about his family. In Mark chapter 6, about verse 2, it says that they said, what are these gracious words that are coming from his mouth? Do we not know his mother, Mary? Do we not know his brothers? And it mentions four guys, James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. And then it says, and are not his sisters here with us? Well, sisters has to be plural. Or since sisters is plural, that means there's more than one sister. So it tells us in that one verse of Scripture that Jesus had six brothers and sisters. He would be the seventh child of Mary and Joseph. Now, we don't have a lot of information about Joseph. The last time we see him is when Jesus is 12 years old. And they go to the temple which they did every year, the Bible says. And they had a big party that they were traveling with, big group of people. And so when it was time to go, they had just assumed that Jesus would be with the rest of the crowd. But they get a day's journey away and find out Jesus is not with the crowd, so they turn around and go back. So between the time that they traveled to go back and look for him, it says it was three days. And they found him in the temple talking with the priests and the rabbis. He was asking them questions they couldn't answer. And he was answering their questions in a way that they marveled at. Well, you remember what the Bible says. As any parents would be, they were distraught, relieved to find him, but distraught because of the time that they'd been separated with him. And you know how the devil would play tricks with your mind and tell you anything and everything in the world was going on. Or it happened to them. But Jesus marveled at the, his parents and said, How is it that you don't know that I, where I would be? How is it you don't know that I must be about my father's business? Well, that's the last time we see any reference to Joseph. Now, if Jesus had six brothers and sisters, he's the seventh one. 
12 years is not a long time to wind up with seven kids. Mary, bless her heart, she never got kept from being pregnant. I heard Lester Summerall say one time about that, and I didn't know at the time until he said something to this effect. But apparently the, the Catholics, the Roman Catholics, believed that Jesus was the only child that Mary had. Well, the Bible contradicts that very simply. But Brother Summerall said this. He said, whenever the Lord assigns you, gives you an assignment, or calls you to do a certain thing, it will never keep you from being able to experience a normal, happy life. And he pointed to Jesus' brothers and sisters as, uh, as proof of that. Her willingness to be the mother of the Son of God didn't disqualify her or keep her from enjoying a normal life otherwise. I like that. You know, if you think about it, we call the birth of Jesus a miracle. But it really isn't. The impregnation of Mary was. That was certainly a miracle. But once she was impregnated, the body worked the same way that it's designed to work and brought forth the son. Now, folks, think about that. When the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary, God inserted himself into the realm of time and space. The difference between the unseen realm and the seen realm is simply that the material realm, the physical realm, is a realm of time and space, and the spirit realm is not. There's no time with God. God doesn't have clocks in heaven that he operates by. And God created one cell, one cell that is certainly microscopic. Remember how many times Jesus would say things about the mustard seed being the smallest seed, but it grows into one of the biggest trees. When the unseen realm the realm of heaven, invaded the scene, the material, the physical realm. It was with something that couldn't be seen with the natural eye anyway. Now, what did the people in Nazareth expect the virgin birth to, to look like? And this is really the point I'm trying to get across to you this morning. And that is, the people in Nazareth were robbed of the things that God had provided for them through Jesus because they had their own idea about what things were supposed to look like. What did they think it would be? Did they think that Mary should have made a public thing about it? One of the reasons that Mary was chosen, I believe, had to do with what the Bible says about Joseph. It says that when Mary was found with child, Joseph being a just man was not willing to put her to public ridicule. Now, was that something that Mary thought about? When Gabriel appeared to Mary and told her what the plan was, her question, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man, did she stop to think about what people would say? Did she stop to think about what Joseph would say? She was already engaged to him at the time. Well, the Bible intimates to us that Joseph must have thought that she was lying to him when, she, when he found out she was pregnant, he knew that it wasn't his. Did Mary think about that? Did Mary consider, what is this going to do to me in, as far as society is concerned? Did she think, will Joseph believe this? Did she make any provision for any of those things? Any of those considerations? 
Well, if she did, she dismissed him pretty quickly by saying, be it unto me according to, to your word. It took a supernatural act of God, the angel appearing, the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream to get him to accept it. He must have been a practical person. And I can just imagine the conversation that Mary has with him where she explains that the angel Gabriel appeared and this is what he said. Joseph must have thought, well, that's a new way to try to deny something. But then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, don't be afraid, Joseph. This thing is of God. He had to sign on too, folks. The angel appears to Joseph in the dream after the fact. He didn't have a choice in the matter. Now, why in the world wouldn't the angel Gabriel have showed up or appeared to both Mary and Joseph at the same time and gotten consent from both parties? Joseph didn't have to accept it. It's not like he would be forced by God to do anything like accepting it. He had a choice. Man always has a choice. That's the reason why the angel had to appear to Mary first and foremost. Because unless she goes along with it, God can't force it upon her. It's not like the Holy Ghost would ever rape her. So her consent was of utmost importance. She's the one that had authority. She's the one that decides whether or not it shall be. And she says, be it unto me according to your word. I'm looking forward to meeting Joseph in heaven. Joseph was a better guy than we give him credit for. So he accepted. He accepted what the angel said. And immediately followed his instructions to get out of the place that he was and to follow the God to uh, follow the angel to a new location well Jesus was born you remember the story about how Caesar Augustus imposed a tax everybody had to go to the, the city of their birth for Joseph that was Bethlehem and while they were there Mary delivered a child. You've heard the story probably back when elementary schools could do Christmas plays. There was one little boy in the class that wanted to be Joseph, but the teacher picked somebody else to be Joseph, and he was chosen to be the innkeeper. Well, he was frustrated by that, and so he thought he'd get even with the teacher and destroy the play, ruin the play. So when the time comes for Mary and Joseph to knock on the door of the inn, he opens the door. Joseph says his line, and then he responds, yeah, come on in. We've got plenty of room. <laughs> but Joseph, being a quick thinker, Hesitates a little bit and says, you know, on second thought, this place is a dump. I'd rather live in the barn. <laughs> and the Christmas play was saved. <laughs> the Bible tells us about the angels following Jesus' birth, how that the angels appeared to the shepherds who were in the fields. And they told them about the Savior that was born. And they said this, the angels surrounding them who were worshiping and praising God for the birth of the Savior. The, Savior. the angels said, this will be a sign unto you. You'll find him in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. 
Now, what kind of sign is that? Don't pay attention to the babies that are in a manger without swaddling clothes. It was a sign, a very specific sign that they understood. They understood that when the angels told them that it was in the city of Bethlehem and mentioned the manger and the swaddling clothes, these shepherds were not just ordinary shepherds. They were priests. A part of the priesthood was to take care of and oversee the lambs that would be used in the temple sacrifices. And so when the angel said, you'll find him in the city of Bethlehem, and here's the sign under you, he'll be lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's what they did to the newborn lambs to keep them from falling or stumbling or injuring themselves in any way whatsoever. They knew exactly where to go. They knew exactly where he would be. And the fact that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger identified Jesus, this new baby that was born, as being taken care of in the same way that the lambs that were born for sacrifice would be. The story of the shepherds and the sign of the manger and the swaddling clothes identified the purpose for which Jesus was born. He was the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. Did Mary know that? Did Mary understand all that when Gabriel appeared to her? If so, it would have to be something that she would have known independent of what Gabriel said. Because he never revealed any of this. He never told Mary that she would give birth in Bethlehem, much less lie, have the baby lying in a manger and wrapped in swaddling clothes. I'm sure there were a lot of things about the birth of Jesus and certainly the life of Jesus that surprised Mary. She certainly didn't make a public statement about being born, about being a virgin and finding herself pregnant because she was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. Now, maybe that's what the people in Nazareth thought that it would be. Maybe they thought there would be some big announcement in whatever way God wanted this thing to work. Some public announcement where the headlines of the newspaper would be, Virgin Found with Child. But by virtue of the fact that they refused to believe that Jesus was anointed to heal the sick and to do miracles and bring about the will of God on the earth indicates to us one, I think, very significant thing. And that is they refused to believe because it wasn't the way that they thought it should look like. I wonder how many people throughout the history of mankind have missed out on the things of God because it didn't look like what they thought it should. The Bible talks about signs and wonders. Well, we understand what signs are. Signs are things that point to something else. But what are wonders? Wonders are things that make you wonder. Now, anytime you and I get to the point where we come upon something that makes us wonder... The decision we make about that individual thing, that something, whatever it is, the decision we make about it determines whether we receive God's best or miss out on everything God has. God changed the world with something that you couldn't see. And by the time that they could see it, by the time that mankind could see what God had done, it looked like just the same things everybody else looked like. 
the birth of Jesus looked just the same except to the shepherds and the ones to whom the angels appeared. It just looked like another baby being born. Now, folks, it was so important. Turn with me to uh, John chapter 10. The birth of Jesus, the virgin birth, is way more important than we give it credit for. And I think it's one of those things, I've come to think, I didn't always think this, but I've come to think that understanding the new birth, or the, the virgin birth rather, is critical to your spiritual growth and development. Now there's a lot of churches, denominations, that don't believe in the virgin birth. Some never have, some have change their position and come to the place where they don't believe. But folks, the virgin birth is the foundation upon everything that belongs to us through the work of Jesus. It's everything. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, there is no salvation. There is no way for any salvation to occur. Because the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that by Adam's sin, the one man's sin, Death passed upon all men. Now the death he's talking about is not physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. Well, if Jesus was born of Mary and Joseph, there's no way he could be a worthy sacrifice. He would have been a spiritually dead person trying to take the place of other spiritually dead people. There was no righteousness. There would have been no righteousness to exchange for spiritual death. There would be no ministry of reconciliation, as Paul talks about to the Romans. There would be no divine exchange of righteousness for death. You can't exchange death for death. So if Jesus was born of anything other than righteous blood, he could not. It would have been impossible for him to stand in as man's substitute. Jesus spoke to this in John chapter 10, verse 1. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The Bible says that we are the sheep of God's pasture. So the sheepfold he's talking about is the earth. The sheepfold that he's referring to is the earth. And he's saying that just as it was critical for him to be born of, the, of, of God himself. The Bible says the life is in the blood. And so the bloodline of Adam had to be overcome. It had to be replaced. Jesus had to be born of some blood other than the blood of a human. Now, medical science tells us that the sperm is that which, when fertilizing the egg, creates the blood in the human body. It's a medically proven fact. So by the virgin birth, by the impregnation of Mary, by the Holy Ghost, Adam's bloodline, which had been tainted for all of mankind because of his sin in the Garden of Eden, was bypassed. Jesus' blood came of God himself. If that were not so, then there would have been no special quality of Jesus' blood that would have made salvation available for mankind. Now, when Jesus talks about entering into the sheepfold or coming into the earth legally, we can look back to the illegal trespass that took place when Satan embodied the serpent. Satan didn't have any authority in the earth. There was no way he could operate here on the earth because the earth had been given into the authority of man. 
but even to deceive Adam and Eve. Well, deceive Eve. The Bible doesn't say Adam was deceived. Therefore, his sin was greater because he disobeyed God with his eyes wide open. But even at that, Satan had to take the form, a physical form, and he chose the serpent to have any access to Adam and Eve. That's the thief and the robber that Jesus is talking about in these verses. He's saying, except that I entered in legally, if I had not been born of a woman, overshadowed by the Holy Ghost, then he wouldn't have had a legal right to operate on the earth and do the things that he did. Now, I know a lot of people have the idea, a lot of churches preach and teach the idea that God is sovereign, and because he's sovereign, he can do anything he wants to any way that he wants to. But if that's true, then he had to go back on his word. Because the Bible says that his plan, his ultimate plan in Genesis 1.26, was to create man in his own image and after his own likeness. In other words, an exact duplicate of God himself. For the purpose of having authority here on the earth. Let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. Well, if God bypasses the authority that he gave man and intrudes into the earth otherwise, then he's gone back on his word and he's a liar. And if he's a liar, then there is no such thing as righteousness. There is no salvation. There's no purpose for mankind beyond just what we can see and experience in this physical realm. But Jesus declares his righteous position as operating into the earth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. That's the way that Satan came into the world, as a thief and a robber. Jesus is simply declaring that because I was born of a woman, I have the same authority that God gave unto mankind in Genesis chapter 1. But because the, the life that was in him, the blood that was in him was God himself, then he had no spiritual death to limit him in any way whatsoever. Folks, the incarnation is everything as a basis and foundation for salvation. And that's the reason why Jesus identified more often as the Son of Man than the Son of God. You may not be aware of this, but there are 60 some odd times, I'm sorry, 65 places in the Bible where Jesus is identified as either the Son of Man or the Son of God. 60 of those times he identifies himself as the Son of Man. Five times, only five times in the four Gospels is Jesus declaring himself to be the Son of God. And three of those are in the same instance, the same context, the same event. Why did Jesus identify so much with man? The church likes to think of Jesus as being the Son of God because it identifies with God here on the earth. But Jesus identified himself with man more often than he did with God. He called God his father. But even in that, most of the times that he spoke to God or spoke of God as being his father, he's talking about as a foundation for why he had authority here on the earth. So Mary told the angel Gabriel, be it unto me according to your word thus giving Jesus a legal right to come into the earth through the, the physical birth. It amazes me how God does so many things in, street, in secret, not in the public eye, but how he works behind the scenes. 
in things and in ways that might seem insignificant, but that has such far-reaching results and consequences. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, you were not born again. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then everything that we hold dear about God, about his word, none of those things exist. Without the virgin birth, Christianity itself is a sham. It's a lie. It doesn't really exist. But folks, for me, I found God to be real. My salvation was real. Wasn't yours? My salvation was everything that God said that it would be. And here, some 58 years later, I'm still finding out what that is. Jesus knew. There's a passage of Scripture that's always bugged me. It's a time where Jesus is in his earthly ministry at the height of his popularity. Jesus wasn't always popular. The first year of his ministry was the year of inauguration. The second year of his ministry was the year of popularity. And the third year of his ministry was the year of persecution. But right in the middle of the greatest popularity that Jesus experienced, there are such people, so many people crowded around him that his mother and his brothers and sisters can't even get into their own house. And it tells us that at that point in time, Mary tried to calm Jesus down. She, along with some of his, we don't know about all, but some of his brothers and sisters, told Jesus that you're going too far with this. Now, I can understand the brothers and sisters not signing on completely. I can understand them having questions. But Mary was the one that was overshadowed, uh, overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. How could she ever not be completely sure that Jesus was who he said he was. She was there. If nobody else on the planet believed, how could she not have believed? Now apparently that attitude of hers was short-lived because we see her staying with Jesus till the end. Finally, to the point where even his brothers and sisters had walked away. But Mary still stays at the foot of the cross as Jesus dies. We know that to be the case because Jesus gave Mary's care unto John. So the two of them were left, if nobody else. I don't blame the Roman Catholics for revering Mary. I don't think they revere her in the right way. But she does deserve our honor. If nothing else, because of her faith, where she declared unto the angel, be it unto me, according to your word. Folks, if we were able to live every day of our lives in just the same way that Mary lived on that one day, there's no limit to what we could have given to us by God through the work of Jesus. There'd be no limit to the image of Jesus that we could live up to 
Doesn't mean we don't have questions. It certainly doesn't mean we understand everything there is. But even in the things that we don't understand, we can say, be it unto me according to your word. That's the way to live. Be it unto me according to your word. If I could get the ushers to come forward, we'll serve communion. And then we'll let you go. Giants are still being slain. God, we believe it. Yes, we can see that wonders are still what you do. We are here for you. Come and do what you do. We are here for you. Come and do what you do is Jesus we need you Jesus we need you it's Jesus we need you Jesus we need you and bodies are still being raised and giants are still Has everyone been served? Did we miss anybody? Jesus never lost sight of the reason why he was here on the earth. He knew that it was about 
the sacrifice, the giving of his life. Where others did not understand, even after he plainly began to teach his disciples, he never wavered. He never held back. When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he was betrayed, his prayer is awesome. It's awesome in its scope. It's awesome in its possibility. Because he said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, it was possible. Jesus didn't have to die. It was the only way for redemption to be accomplished. But there for a short time, the fate of mankind hung in the balance. So he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he sided with man. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The Bible tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the shame and the suffering of the cross. And that's not just talking about the physical aspects of his crucifixion. He's talking about the things that he had to do in the three days and nights that he was in the belly of the earth to pay the awful price for man's sin. It was a horribly torturous condition that he suffered for three days and nights. The work on the cross wasn't accomplished in just the few hours that he hung there on the tree. But the real judgment came in those three days between his death on the cross, his physical death on the cross, and the resurrection of his body. The Bible says that the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples was something that he had looked forward to. Again, the joy that he was looking for was your new birth, your redemption and mine. The same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Father, we take this bread and recognize and acknowledge that it represents the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. His body which was broken for our well-being. His body which took stripes upon his back. And that by those stripes we were healed. So Father, as we receive this bread this morning as an equal part of what Jesus provided for us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We claim Jesus to be our healer. We claim this to be healing bread for our bodies. Lord Jesus, we magnify you for your willingness to pay the price for sickness and disease. So we receive this bread as a token and as a sign that you are the healer of our flesh. Let's receive the bread. Paul says, after the same manner, he also took the cup. When he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this cup that represents the blood of Jesus. Precious blood, righteous blood that was shed for us. We magnify you, Lord, 
for the exchange that was made. You took our sin upon you that we might take your righteousness upon ourselves. We declare, Father, therefore, that by the blood of Jesus we are made righteous. By the blood of Jesus, we are not only forgiven, but our sins are wiped away as if they never happened. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness. Let's receive the cup. Let's all stand together, please. Let's lift our hands and our hearts to the Lord. Tell him how much we love him. Tell him how much we appreciate what his son did for us. Thank you, Father, for your great plan of redemption. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for carrying it out. Father, we pray that this Christmas season would be a different one for us. One like we've never experienced before where the reality of the birth of Jesus certainly is made clear and apparent to us. But that we experience you, Father, and experience our relationship with you, Jesus, in a manner that we've never known. We love you, Heavenly Father. We bless your holy name, Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for indwelling us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Folks, we love you. We hope you have a chance to come back and be with us for Christmas Eve. But if not, have a merry, merry, merry Christmas. <laughs>